Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. For this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Jonathan and Ann Lynn Culp. They were recommended to me by Rebecca Mui, who said that they might be able to give me some unique insight into the topic of propaganda as it pertains to race, in part because Jonathan and Ann Lynn are an interracial couple. That's a particularly interesting situation for our discussion because, as we talked about with propaganda a lot, polarization is something which is extremely common in regard to being propagandized, right? You've got uh, one group that thinks extremely uh, in this direction and another group that thinks extremely in the other direction. So when you get Jonathan, who is raised in a similar environment to me, in a conservative, Christian, largely white, uh, rural community. And then you get Anlin, who is raised in a very different community. You kind of see these two worlds collide, and you see what comes out on top uh, as they've, they've worked through issues together. And so it's a, a beautiful depiction of uh, two people who are trying to uncover truth and work together through um, the polarization, the political polarization, the racial polarization, and everything. I think in the uh, in the interview, throughout the whole thing, I think my favorite part, and the part that I, I think you ought to look out for the most, is the one where Jonathan and Lynn come up with their two big reasons why things are the way that they are in the world, in the United States, but especially in the church. Like, why, why do people, uh, why are we susceptible to this uh, racism, this uh, propaganda? And so they, they came up with two ideas that I completely agree with. The first one is politicizing, right? And that's something that Jacques Ellul uh, talked about, and I, I had a quote in our Foundations episode, and I'll make sure to, to put that in the show notes here too. But Ellul talked about how politics is it ends up uh, making everything political and polarizing to the extreme. And that's so true. Everything is a political issue. Uh, even wearing a mask has become a political issue, or was, at least, when, when COVID was around. The other thing uh, that was mentioned was this idea of innocence, being in an uh, in a guilt-innocence culture. And I don't usually hear us talk about our own culture as guilt-innocence. Usually when, uh, when I talk to people who go cross-culturally, they talk about how weird it is to be in an um, honor-shame culture, right? Because it's so different from ours. But it makes sense that, well, if honor-shame is different than ours, then we must have our own thing, right? And that's just something that we're swimming in, so we don't really ever take note of it. But we are in a guilt-innocence culture. And so this idea that we don't want to be viewed as guilty is, is a big deal. And it's in part why we can't really talk about race, because I can't really admit that I'm guilty of things that would constitute as racism, because uh, you're either guilty or you're not, right? There, there aren't really levels, degrees, uh, any of those sorts of things. And I can't lump myself into the category of having racist thoughts or racist actions or, or anything like that. There's a lot more than that from Jonathan and Anlin in this episode, so hopefully you're able to listen to the whole thing and enjoy their wisdom and insight. So um, the, the reason that I asked you all to share, I think it was Rebecca who actually um, recommended chatting with you because I was telling her a little bit about this this uh, season that I'm doing on uh, on propaganda and truth and discipleship and just trying to figure out um, how do we uh, how do we uncover propaganda in our own lives and things that we've bought into because it's so hard to see mm -hmm. uh, and then how do we help other people disciple other people to see that and then especially as the church like how do we do this as the church because it's so much more important for our witness um, to, to be able to do this effectively. And so Rebecca mentioned you guys and said that, uh, you might have some insight. And I think because of your relationship, you probably have uh, a lot of insight that you guys have been able to, to glean off of each other. 
um, and and be a bit more introspective. So hopefully, you can share a little bit of that wisdom with uh, with me today. All right. So maybe first of all, if you guys want to introduce yourselves and uh, maybe give a little bit of background that you might think would be pertinent here. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, my name is Anlin Culp. I'm a born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. My parents were both uh, born and raised in Haiti, and they met here in the States. So I guess I call myself Haitian-American. Um, uh, yeah, I was in Brooklyn until I was about 14. Then I moved to Long Island, so kind of urban to suburban um, type living. And I went to school and everything here in New York. I went to college at Stony Brook University. I did a bachelor's in psychology and a master's in social work. I'm currently home taking care of our four girls, 11, 9, 7, and 5, and partnering with John in ministry here at a little, our small church. And you said, you said Haitian background? Yes. Okay. That's, uh, that's fascinating. I've been reading a lot about Haiti recently because uh, I've been trying to narrow down what do I want to talk about uh, when we get to our government section. And Mm -hmm. I think Haiti, I I went and saw the Black Panther movie. I don't know if you've seen the recent one. And uh, yeah, well, at the end, when when the, they they named the guy uh, that they, they named the kid, uh, I, I'm gonna butcher the name, but like Toussaint, I think mm-hmm. they named him. I was like, oh my gosh, I know who that is, and mm-hmm. uh, it was it was very um, anti-imperial, and mm-hmm. and it was uh, is interesting. So I've mm-hmm. I'm enjoying studying Haiti. Yeah, lots of history there. Yeah, so uh, I'm John cult obviously um so i grew up on a farm in middle america uh, the state of wisconsin and uh grew up as a pastor's kid and a country boy although i got coined as a city slicker by my family um because i preferred to be in town at my my dad's uh, car retail shop um, rather than being on the farm <clears throat> and I didn't like to get dirty. <laughs> so needless to say, um, I've been living uh, in New York City for 18 years and uh, this is where I call home and I tell people this is where I finished growing up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, met Anlin. Uh, well, before I actually moved to New York, mm-hmm. um, and then we became more acquainted and um, realized that we had mutual interest in each other at some point, and um, we're married in 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, always had an interest in um, kind of reaching the young kind of older boy, young man population mm-hmm. uh, to uh, help them find manhood and ultimately find Jesus and had a particular and have a particular vision to see um, young men that would otherwise maybe be on the streets um, mm-hmm. to um, be under the lordship of Jesus and to use their gifts and uh, call in, in, in the body of Christ. So um, I think um, Anlin and I particularly cared about uh, young people, and so mm-hmm. um, that also drew us together. Yeah. Um, uh, so somewhere in along the way, 2011, I was called to um, pastor, be a part of the pastoral team at our church here in Brooklyn, Followers of Jesus Mennonite Church. And in 2017, I was commissioned to the lead role, and so um, that takes a lot of my time and energy, of course. Um, and we're both still trying to learn how to be parents. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you. Um, so as I was as I was trying to figure out uh, some of the questions to ask you, I was I was looking through uh, different materials on YouTube and and looking at some of your other interviews. And one of the ones that I I came across was uh, Anabaptist perspective interview. And and in there, I was on the edge of my seat because you guys were talking about your first fight as a couple. And, uh, but then I was kind of left hanging because you, you never really dug into what that was. And, uh, and I think, I'm not sure, but I think that it's going to be pertinent uh, 
to to kind of what we're talking about today. Would if it's not too personal, would you mind sharing a little bit about your your first fight as a couple and um, maybe how that came about and what you what you learned from that? Mm-hmm. I'll set the stage. Yeah. You get the you get the content, mm-hmm. and then we'll kind of wrap up. But um, so setting the stage, um, she was Anlin was um, still wrapping up senior year of undergraduate school, mm-hmm. and uh, I was on campus to see her and uh we were feeling pretty good about our dating relationship um and then somewhere along the line well i think she was taking some black history classes and kind of talking about that and i was interested um and somewhere along along the line i you know chimed in with abraham lincoln and uh like how what a great guy he was right black community um and Anna didn't seem to be quite as intrigued as I was so you take it from here I think um you know this is 17 18 years ago so I just had a recollection that at the moment I, I was understanding him to say that we should all be grateful for what Lincoln did that kind of thing and I'm like I think I my reaction was I'm grateful for the Emancipation Proclamation, that it was the right thing to do. But uh, furthermore, he didn't do it because he just felt that it needed to be abolished. Like you'll learn in African American history um, courses that he wasn't an abolitionist. He he was he cared about the Union, and so if he could have kept slavery and kept the Union, we might not have had the Emancipation. Um, but because it was it was going to keep the union. To, it was it was all about the union. The priority wasn't about freeing the slaves. And so I'm like, yeah, that was a good thing that he did, but he should have done that a long time ago. And he didn't do it because he had some personal, he felt personally interested in, in caring for um, African-Americans. And then furthermore, there was personal things that he said um, about feeling that white people were superior to black people at the time, which, which would have been the popular thought, but that just kind of adds to the the idea that he's not exactly like the black hero <laughs> for us. Yeah. So of course that was very hard for me to hear <laughs> that she would push back and kind of say, Oh, you know, he might not have done that. Um, and I said, well, you know, how can this um, person of color actually not value what Abraham Lincoln did in freeing the slaves? I and mean, this is a historic time in American history. And for me, it's like really important because I'm not interested in being a part of a country that has a history of slavery. And so the man, the hero that saves the day, like, you know, we, that's that's going to be forever celebrated. Um, but I think to understand the collision, um, you know, I was exposed to more of a nationalistic driven American history. And Anlin um, had been exposed to a more comprehensive American history that kind of had a had a a, a lot broader perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for you, were you was that uh, like homeschool Christian school or just you know what you learned from maybe your family and peers? Um, so I think it's it's kind of twofold. I think it's mm-hmm. the, the actual history that I learned uh, that was I was taught, and that was um, primarily um, the mm-hmm. Becca curriculum, um, and so. Uh, I fell in love with American history right out of the gate, right? First grade. Um, and I was well on my way to being nationalistically minded myself. Mm-hmm. That's kind of another story. Um, but at this point, I I was not compelled that way. Um, but that, that was the framework. I, I, so I, I'd said it was kind of twofold. I think the second piece is just being, just growing up in middle America, right? Mm-hmm. You. Um, you just don't have a broader perspective. <clears throat> oh yeah, no, no, I'm 100% with you on that. Uh, I grew up on that same and similar curriculum, and uh, I, I think a very similar background in rural Pennsylvania. So, okay. mm-hmm. yep. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, as an interracial couple, I think that that you guys have with your two different backgrounds. Like I said earlier, I think that. Uh, because you you've gotten to see kind of uh, both groups and then come together 
and and meet, uh, you kind of figure out where some of those different ideas uh, clash. And John, in the interview that uh, I watched, uh, you made a comment that I thought was really pertinent to to uh, our justice discussions today. You said that we're foolish to think that groups which have experienced significant oppression were formed over generations, but that oppressive groups, um, but that the oppressive group wasn't also formed over generations. And in my mind, there's this um, there's this clip. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but Oprah, like back in her her very early days, she went to I think it was Forsyth, Georgia, and uh, she she's there and she's talking to this this group of people because in Forsyth, Georgia, like they had kicked out every black person they said like they had sun sunset laws or some whatever they called them mm -hmm. where if anybody if any black person was there after sunset like there's no guarantee what was going to happen and so they they literally just took people's property and, and kicked them out and so when she's there you see these these people who are rioting you've got like 10 kids that are uh, 10 year old kids who are like you can see the vitriol in their faces this hatred and I'm I'm thinking, I'm like, well, wait a second. I was alive at that time. Like those 10-year-old kids are only a couple of years older than me. Like they're the ones going into Congress and uh, the Senate and all of that stuff right now, like be becoming mayors and all that stuff. Like for for me to think that uh, you know, oh yeah, yeah, that, that was that's all history, ancient history. It's like, no, it's in people my age today. Like I can see them on video camera doing this stuff. Uh, having the stuff indoctrinated into them. Mm -hmm. And so that was really that was really eye-opening to me um, to to kind of think about that that kind of thing. Um, because, yeah, I don't think of my group as being um, indoctrinated or racist. Mm -hmm. So maybe um maybe each of you, I know, John, you just kind of shared a little bit of of your views of Abraham Lincoln. Um, but I don't know if there's, if Anne Lynn, there's anything that, that uh, you've uncovered as well, maybe about some of your thoughts where you realize that, oh, I, you know, I was maybe mistaken on this. So maybe you guys could uh, give a few ideas or, or actions that you've uncovered in your own life through your relationship with each other that uh, helps you to realize some things that maybe you were taught or understood incorrectly growing up. Yeah, I am. Um... I actually watched that clip then recently about Oprah and in Forsyth, Georgia. And hearing the comments just kind of reminded me of what I thought racism was growing up. So to me, um, the issue was the people that were in the interview, the people that were just using the N-word on national TV saying, we don't want them here. And they need to stay with their people and that type of stuff. To me, that was, I understood that that was the issue, the big issue that we need to battle in terms of racism. Just blatant racist, just people walking around um, doing and saying intentionally hurtful things um, with no qualms about it. But I have learned just even it was because of my relationship and just in my relationships with people at church and things too, um, that it's not so much the blatant racism that is hard to battle, that's obvious, it's right in your face. It's the, su the subtle underlying um, subconscious prejudices that we don't realize is ingrained in our society and therefore ingrained in the way we relate to each other. That's, that's the, the, big, the bigger battle. How do you bring that to a conscious awareness so that people can interact with each other in healthier ways consciously? And so how that happened for us is like, um, this happened a while ago. I'll just share a personal story, but we were we were on a date. I think we were married by now. It was in our early years, but we were in a mall. We're sitting where we could eat, and where you were eating, you could see people, see things happening. So somebody got arrested. The first it was a night where I guess several people were decided to shoplift, but the first person that got was being escorted out by police was a person of color. I don't know if they were Latino or black, but brown, brown, right? And John's initial comment was, got him, you know, like, which, yeah, I was, I agreed. That was like, yeah, you know, I don't know what these kids are up to. They were young kids. And then later on, as we're sitting in our day, uh, I think it was an Asian lady that was being escorted out. And John said, you got to wonder how she got herself in that position. Like, and all of a sudden I was like, why didn't she say that before? <laughs> like, 
Well, and he, and so that was like really good for both of us because I, I mean, obviously John's not racist, right? <laughs> like, I know he loves me. I know he loves like, not just me, but all people of color. Like he's not, um, he would never intentionally hurt anyone um, with his words. And he truly loves and cares about people. But there was this underlying assumption that for some people, they got what they deserve. And for someone else, maybe they just got themselves in a bad situation. But like, we, so then we ended up having a really good discussion about it because he wasn't consciously aware that he was even doing that, but I could hear it right away. So that's an example. Yeah, um, there's, there's a lot, <laughs> you know, that we can kind of unpack here. One thing I might note, um, you know, kind of referencing the Foresight Georgia scenario there with Oprah. Um, so, there's something very specific to the South. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so I think, you know, going back to the comment that you referenced that I had made, um, you know, the, I think there are, there are families, right? And, and to your observation, you know, these, these 10 year olds that are now, you know, in their forties or fifties or whatever, um, you know that they're a product of they're potentially a product of a family line that have held um, racist views for for generations, right? Um, and maybe maybe even go back to being slave owners. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a there's a really a, a very specific thing there that um, you know they have to deal with. Um, and, and it impacts um, just as deeply, I think, as, mm -hmm. as those that are oppressed. Um, I think that what happens maybe um, in the North where you didn't have quite that overt um, of, you know, racism, slavery, and so forth, um, you have a problem where because you didn't, have to engage um, these racial issues, um, then you don't actually know for sure mm -hmm. what you think or feel until you have to encounter it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then when you do and things begin to be exposed and you say things that like, whoa, I, that didn't sound right. I, I, I didn't mean that. <laughs> yeah, I definitely didn't mean that. Let me let me think. How how should I say that? Well, actually, you kind of didn't mean it, but you didn't know that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of I think the challenge that many um, Americans in the in the white community have to, to, to grapple with. the The challenge is that, that takes humility, mm -hmm. um, and if we're not willing to um, to have those conversations and look at that, um, then then you can allow that to entrench uh, in your heart, and um, that can become something that you pass on. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. There's definitely, um, you know, growing up in the north, there's a lot now that after doing a lot of studying that I'm like, oh yeah, I can look back on on my life or some of the things that. Uh, different family members or friends said and and realize now, okay, yeah, I was I really was steeped in it, but you don't realize it while you're in it. Um, and now that I feel like I've stepped out of it, it's very difficult to see so many of my friends and family and church community who are just vitriolic against, you know, th this idea of systemic racism and and that kind of stuff. it's um, it's hard when you're steeped in it. Um, so uh, one of the other things that uh, you brought up in the interview, you'd mentioned Ukraine uh, and you'd mentioned some of the racism that was going on there. And, uh, you know, I, I think at, at this point in, in the United States, I think we've gotten a little bit better at, at talking about overt racism and denouncing overt racism. And uh, what, what you brought up going on in Ukraine seems like one of those examples of overt racism that we should be able to denounce yet uh like i'm living in romania right now bordering ukraine uh, I, I don't watch u.s news too much but from my understanding 
um, what was going on there in Ukraine didn't show up too much in U.S. news. So would you would you mind kind of talking a little bit about what was uh, going on in Ukraine in, in regard to racism and, um, you know, how much that was discussed in, in your circles or in the U.S.? Yeah. Um, so soon after the war broke out, um, everyone was fleeing the country, of course. And there are a lot of African students there, um, international students. They make up about 20% of the international student population in Ukraine, um, students from Africa, different parts of Africa. So they were fleeing too, um, trying to get on trains, some of them walking really far to get to the closest border they could get to. And when they would arrive either at a train or at a border, they were being turned away because they were African. They were told things like, uh, you're not Ukrainian, so you can't seek asylum. Or um, getting on the train, they were told, um, Ukrainians get on first, you guys need to wait. And um, sometimes even trains that still had space, they were told they couldn't get on to those trains. Um, and then when they did arrive to some countries, they were told, you can't seek asylum here, you need to go back to your country. This is for Ukrainians, not for Africans. And so there, there were people who found out about it um, in different countries and ended up um, they, they started an African-American, well, no, African, I mean, everything's African-American, African, -American, African um, student coalition, a global coalition of Africans to help get those students out of the country and to help um, raise money for some of them to get out of then the bordering countries or as, um, as countries that were providing asylum for Ukrainians, but not for them. Um, so, yeah, I noticed it, of course. Um, I actually, I think I even looked it up to begin with. I wondered, um, what are the Black people doing over there? I usually wonder that when there's a situation like that. Um, and then I, I found articles, but I had to look it up. It wasn't being reported. And then in my circle of friends, um, all my friends of color were sending messages to each other about it. It was posted on their stories and things like that. Um, to be honest, we didn't discuss, we, we discussed it. We didn't really discuss it um unless other people brought it up especially in um maybe more our um our circle of friends where we're like we're not sure if they're gonna think we're just trying to make trouble so we're just not gonna make a big deal about it <laughs> so we were like um we'll bring it up if it you know if it seems convenient to come like a convenient time to bring it up and then kind of talk about it but we didn't want to trouble the waters at the time. So we just spoke about it with people that were aware and maybe wanted to talk about it. Yeah, I was I was just curious about that. You know, I wasn't sure kind of where you'd go with that. But, uh, you know, with with John, uh, with you bringing up uh, being kind of steeped in nationalism and such growing up, you know, one of the things that I've seen a whole lot in regard to how nationalism plays out is, um, you know, if you're if you're an ally with somebody, you can't really bring up the bad stuff, you know, uh, same thing with the United States. Like we can't bring up the bad things that we've done. Cause you know, we're, we're a benevolent nation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I didn't know if, if, uh, yeah, you had any pushback in, in any of those discussions, but I guess you just, you avoided having those discussions with people that you thought it might not go over well with. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. And I'm not sure, you know, we were even processing. I'm not sure why we did. It's not something that we always do. Like we're not afraid to have the hard conversations. I think it was following so many intense discussions already that we were like, you know what, let's just sit this one out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. I think the takeaway though, is that the conversation uh, or the awareness didn't uh, circulate uh, in, you know, among the white community, mm -hmm. it, but certainly did not within the black community. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, I just think that in itself maybe is a little bit telling, right? Mm -hmm. um, in, in the sense that, um, you know, I, I think, well, let me just say it this way. I think that the world, you know, there's many people in the world that look on the situation in Ukraine and have sympathy for what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe including Africa, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, and and certainly, I think 
uh, European background countries uh, feel a, a real, real sense of uh, alliance with Ukraine. But um, it's it's not so so natural to kind of notice um, when the you know when it, there's a subgroup that is also suffering mm -hmm. um, because I guess it, it doesn't affect us right mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you. Um saw the coverage that Trevor Noah does, that did on yeah. how the news even covered um, the war in Ukraine. There's the way he, he plays all the clips that the, the news media is saying, this is happening in a developed nation and this is happening to Europeans. It, it's like almost like this shouldn't happen um, in these countries. I, I think even one clip said, this is not some third world country, this is Ukraine. Like, oh, it's okay if it happens in third world countries though. <laughs> that type of uh, subconscious, like, and I'm sure if that news anchor would be made aware, like, do you know what that statement sounds like? They might think about it, but that's that's where I notice it's the subconscious or um, not blatantly um, racist things that is actually are more pervasive and more hurtful. Yeah, that's actually where I get my news over here, my US news as like Trevor Noah, John Oliver and uh, I don't know. It's it seems slightly less depressing to get it in comedic form. <laughs> um, so you know, speaking of of that, um, uh, of just this this idea of how we're kind of oblivious to it, uh, like it's in our subconscious and it and it comes out. Um, what like specifically in regard to the church? Because that's that's really. You know, uh, I feel this the need to judge those inside the church, not not those outside the church. Like I expect the world to be the world, but uh, it's really depressing when I feel like the church isn't being the church. Mm -hmm. What, um, where are maybe the the biggest blind spots that you see the church, uh, the modern church in the United States as having, and um, you know why? It, it, I, I know that it's partly conjectural and um, it really complex, but if you could summarize it at all, um, mm -hmm. what are the blind spots and, and why do we have them? What's keeping us from seeing? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I know it's, it sounds so simple, but it's just the easiest way for me to explain what I've observed, even just on my, like what I see on my social media is, that we've forgotten the basics of a two kingdom theology. And to me, that's such such a, an important foundation. Like if, if as believers, we're all part of the kingdom of God and serving God and doing what he's calling us to do, then when things come up in the world, we're gonna deal with it the way Jesus did. And so even if I don't understand what it's like to be a person of color, or even if I am confused about what is being said on both sides, if I apply the principle of um, treating someone the way I wanna be treated, um, of submitting and laying my life down, all those basic, then I won't get wrapped up in the, but who did you vote for? Um, but what party says that? And, and I just observed that um, people are more concerned about political parties and the constitution than about souls. And I feel that if you're concerned about souls, if you're maintaining a two kingdom theology, some of these things, um, resolve themselves and that people experience your love. People can, people can feel heard, even if they're not completely understood that it, it seems really basic, but it's, it's missing for me. I've, um, one way I explain it to people in a, in a very simple way is that um, people in, in in the circles that we're in, I'm usually a minority, right? Um, we're in more in conservative Anabaptist circles. And I've had some friends and family, they want to send me information about Candace Owens, but they never thought to ask me about how I feel personally. Like, and I, I don't really watch stuff I don't and I'm not I'm not a political person at all I'm not wrapped up in any party but I find it interesting that if I say anything about my experience I'm immediately um, 
put into a certain camp. And I'm like, well, that's not what I'm saying. I'm actually just sharing my personal experience, but they can't hear past the political lines. Um, and so I think that's just a perfect example of how we feel as a church. Like if we're hearing what people share personally through political lines, so how can we, how can we be a light to the rest of the world? Yeah, and uh, sorry. Yeah, in in 2020, um, you know, we had the pandemic, and then we had lots of opinions about how you respond to that. This whole thing of mm -hmm. mask wearing, and, and then you had um, the situation uh, in Minneapolis mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Floyd's death, and um, and then just other. Um, kind of police violence situations and 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 that that year one of the things that became clearer for me well one, one thing that happened is I fell even more in love with the gospel mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it became even more meaningful to me um, and I thought it already was very much so um, but one of the things that stood out to me is I, I realized that I think the reason the reason the church is a bit handicapped on some of these things um, is because boy, I didn't pre-formulate this. <laughs> let me let me work through this. So let me put it simply, the, the gospel is not our, our answer. Mm -hmm. and, and, and let me explain that. So when I, when I talk about uh, a situation where there was police violence and, you know, I make the comment that, um, you know, this, this is, didn't need to happen. Um, this shouldn't have happened. We should not continue to see black men um, die at the hand of a policeman. And then the response is, well, if they would just um, stop resisting um, the law, if they would live above the law, um, you know, these things could be avoided. The problem is, you know, they're resisting arrest. Um, and then you start to break that down, right? And you push back on these situations and you say, well, but why is it that, you know, these, that policemen seem to be confronting these situations more than they're confronting an equal situation with another person of, uh, from a different race or a white person. And, and you start having these conversations, you start realizing that when you start pushing back, people start feeling like maybe you're trying to tell them that they're racist. Well, I never was trying to say that, but you get the feeling that they're starting to feel that. So they got to defend their position and their views. And, and so, or if, if Anlin would start talking about her experience as a black person, you know, uh, and they say, well, I never knew that. Mm -hmm. And oh my, have I ever made you feel that way? Well, it's okay that they're concerned about that. But what I find is that, well, what, what, what if you did? <laughs> make her feel a certain way. What are we going to do about it? Is it the end of the world? Is your life ending? Or is there healing? Is there forgiveness? Is there a way to, to walk through this? And, and so I, I'm, I'm kind of taking a long roundabout way here to, to say that I, I, I realize that within the white community, you know, we very quickly want to say, I'm not racist, maybe even to the extent of saying racist doesn't exist anymore. Um, and these problems are manufactured. They're just, 
you know, creating news content, uh, you know, whatever the arguments may be. And I'm saying, I think that you are trying to ensure a position where you're not guilty. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a, in a, our culture is primarily a guilt innocence culture. Um, so if we're, as long as we can maintain innocence, we've obtained the, the ultimate, right? Um, some cultures would be driven more by the shame guilt or the, or the shame honor mm-hmm. of society. And so if I can maintain innocence, I have a chain to the highest moral. Um, but um, so, so we're doing everything we can to protect our innocence. Mm-hmm. And so God forbid that I'm guilty in any way. And I'm saying, well, what if you, what if you just would maybe, what, what if you actually discover you are guilty? The gospel is there for that. Like, that's where we find, can we go to Jesus and say, you know what? I think I have uh, maybe a little bit of bias or racism, or maybe I was unkind, or, you know, maybe I didn't have a heart to treat my enemy the way Jesus did. You know, I think for me, it comes back to the gospel uh, and, and really embracing that. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, both of those things. I mean, the politicization—that's um, something that actually turned me to nonviolence. I, w- I would have never gone there if it wasn't for the polarization of 2016 and mm-hmm. that just helping me to see my community for what it really was, um, and sending me down a, a really long rabbit trail of uh, studies. But um, so, yeah, I completely agree with that. But then also what you said about. Uh, the the trying to protect our perceived innocence at least uh it just reminds me about so much the other things that i've i've been looking at at the moment like the uh uh, sexual abuse in the church you look at ravi zacharias or you look at um the southern baptist convention right now and it's like they're trying to silence things they're trying to silence things in the name of Christ, you know, well, we don't want to tarnish his reputation. Like we want the church to look pure, the church to look innocent. Um, so in the name of, of goodness and, and righteousness, we, we cover up sin, uh, to, to appear innocent. So yeah, I think those, those are two great answers to that question. So to, yeah, yeah. Really short. Um, I like, I, like a summary, I think the willingness to be informed by our political preferences then rather than our personal relationships in the church is a big issue. Yeah. And in, in regard to personal relationships, I know for me personally, um, it, it really wasn't until I started to get to know um, more people of color and, and various backgrounds that I started to, to see things like when I started reading black authors um, and historical works and, and uh, things like that, I, I was like, oh, this this isn't these aren't just issues that have popped up in 2016. You know, Du Bois was talking about like some of the very same things that people are talking about today. Um, and it's it's just, yeah, absolutely amazing. The thing that was that was the strongest for me was I, I have not talked to a uh, a black person yet in the last four or five years since I started asking this question who has not had a, a negative encounter with the police that just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my parents' neighbor is actually, he's a, he's a, he was a police officer and uh, for many, many years. And I asked him, he's a black, black man. And I said, I said, so wait, you're a police officer and you're, you're a black man. He's like, so can you tell me like, what's your, like, have you ever had any negative encounters with the police? He's like, oh yeah. He's like, a lot. And I was like, for like silly things, not just like speeding tickets. He's like, yeah, they they pull me over for like, you know, a light being out or not using a signal when I did or some other things. And he's like, I've it's he's like, yeah, it's all over the place. And that was that was amazing for me to hear that coming from a black man who is also a police officer, because he's he's walking in both of those worlds. And uh, he's able to kind of see see that. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, to to end, final question. 
uh, it's really easy, I think, for me at least, to get into these topics and become really depressed because it just seems like it's hopeless. Do you have any words of hope for uh, specifically the church, you know, in in regard to maybe some things that uh, we are doing well, or maybe some resources that we have at our fingertips that if we we just access, like we could turn things around. The gospel, yeah. I know that that's one. Yes, the gospel is definitely first first and foremost. Um, I think that what the things that I've experienced that have gone well in the last few years is even even when we do mess up because we will and we're human is um, having people come back and say, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And I still don't know, but I care. I've had people message me that I hadn't spoken to in years sending me messages like that. And that that really touched me. I think that's something I've um, I've heard from other people too, other people of color who said like just a random person reached out to me and said, I just want to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I think um, that's something that the church has done well at, like the humility to go back and say, I'm sorry, I didn't know. And I could have done better or I still don't know, but I, I, I want to, I want to do better, that type of thing. Um, and just like kind of that, that's specifically on racial issues, but I think, uh, Politically, I've been seeing more and more believers say, uh, call each other out. Um, let's let's keep the first things first. Like, don't be afraid to call that out in each other and say, don't get wrapped up in that. Um, there's other ways that we can care for people. I, you know, um, Roe v. Wade is a very controversial thing going on right now. We could get wrapped up in the politics or we could say, Where, where's the closest single mom that I can help? Where's the... Um, closest Planned Parenthood that I can pray outside of like I just think I've seen I've seen people say let's stop the talk and let's let's do action that's what the early church did and I've been encouraged by that and um, wanting to do more of that myself like I don't want to get caught up in talk I want to do do loving things um and I've seen that yeah so I think um in the difficult um, conversations and all of the, you know, kind of um, unsettled dust. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's hard to find your way sometimes. And, um, but I think the the silver lining of it is that the the spirit uses that to, to bring together um, people that can advance the cause of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I we're encouraged um, to continue to see that. And um, so, you know, I think Anlin kind of touched on it, but just to say it a little more specifically, I think we need to talk face to face. Okay. So, um, you know, in terms of just a, if you want a resource, stop, get off of social media and go talk to somebody <laughs> yeah. um, because that the social media, I think it may not be the cause of uh, polarization, but it fuels it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so we've been encouraged to, we've gone into communities where we're like, oh, what are we getting into? <laughs> like, are we going to make it out? And then we got there and it's like, wow, these people are really cool. Like they're really kind. And um, because, you know, we related face to face. I think it's really important. Um, and then also touched on it, but I've just seen that churches or individuals that really do have a clear identity in Christ and his kingdom. Um, and clearly disassociate themselves with earthly kingdoms are generally more equipped Mm -hmm. to navigate racial and cross-cultural challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, then those that align or identify with with earthly political uh, positions or agendas. And so, um, and and the spirit, I believe the spirit is is continuing to bring those people together and, and, and doing that work in people's hearts. So I think we, can be encouraged by that. In terms of like, um, you know, like a book, we found that uh, we found the following. Mm-hmm. There's an author that, um, a writer that, I think he he has a, a really, you know, I don't know if I can uh, put a stamp on all of everything he says, but mm-hmm. we've just found him to be uh, a voice that can speak for the black community and for the church. Can you repeat that? Cause your audio cut out right as you said the the name. Sure. Yeah. Esau McCauley. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, he wrote uh, Reading While Black. Is that okay? Right. Oh. And there's a really great, um, he was interviewed by the Holy Post talking about um, believers and war and just political things. I can't remember the title of it, but if you put type in Isam Akali and the Holy Post, that was a very good interview that really summarizes a lot of what we're talking about. Okay, good recommendation. Yeah, I enjoyed enjoyed uh, his book. I only read that one, um, but I, I thought it was really good. Well, I, that's that's all that I have for you. Um, I appreciate you taking time out of your your schedule to uh, to chat with me. And um, yeah, anything else that you want to uh, add? Well, we um, I guess one big thing that we always like to tell people when we do talks like this, we we love to go to communities and we love to do the face to face. We don't really have very much of a social media presence. Um, we're not opposed to it. Uh, I say kudos to the people who have the the, men, the mental capacity to do that. But we uh, we enjoy face to face. So if anyone wants to email or chat or have us come visit, um, we enjoy those face to face interactions. Okay, and I will I'll put uh, resources in the the show notes. Are you pretty easy to find uh, your email and everything? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, and I would just uh, say that we have a lot to be grateful for mm-hmm. uh, starting to preach the revelation and uh there will be every tribe and nation mm-hmm. and tongue will worship for the throne mm-hmm. so there's a great future ahead of us <laughs> awesome well thanks again and you all have a wonderful rest of your day thank, thank you. you that's all for now so peace and because i'm a pacifist when i say it i mean it podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.